Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Learn With Us. This is Nikos, your host. Today I'm joined with Sanchin Chai, who's a Google employee working on TensorFlow. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for inviting me, Nikos. Yes, it's a real honor to have the second Google fellow on the show. Um, real privilege, actually. So, Sanchin, can you tell me a little bit about where you're originally from and uh, your ed- early education? Yeah, so I was originally from China, so I was born in Shanghai and uh, I did my um, primary and secondary education in Shanghai, China. And I did my college in Beijing and then I came to the US. I've stayed in the US for um, longer than I can believe, like (laughs) almost like 12 years, I think. Um, I did uh, a PhD in um, kind of like biomedical engineering like major. So it was like a major shift for me when I went from like biomedical engineering research into um, IT. But um, that happened like in 2014. So I first worked at like MathWorks for two years and then um, I switched to Google. And so far I'm loving the, the working experience at Google. So did you have some IT experience in, uh, before you made a switch from biomedical? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess in my research, I, I had always used like programming a lot and I was personally interested in programming and uh, also machine learning and artificial intelligence and I guess that's the reason why I end up doing the work I'm doing right now which is TensorFlow and TensorFlow.js. Okay because I I actually had a biophysics degree myself and then I made a transition to to web development but I should have Mm -hmm. done a PhD like yourself in machine learning. Oh great yeah. Yeah okay so how did you manage to get into the, the TensorFlow project from when you got into Google? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess I was lucky. Um, so when I was applying um, for jobs at Google, I was employed at MathWorks. And it turns out that my wife was also working at Google. And she attended like an internal jobs fair um, sort of event. And uh, she met um, a Google uh, Googler whose name um, was Dee Scully. So Dee was um, actually... Uh, assembling a new team that does machine learning and artificial intelligence in the Cambridge um, office of um, Google, which is just right next to Boston. And uh, I applied for the job. And then in the like on um, the team's matching phase, I talked to Dee Scully and uh, I was hired. Um, so I was very fortunate um, that I was basically in the right place at the right time. So at that time, um, as you probably know, like TensorFlow was just starting. Um, it, mm-hmm. it was just one month um, or even less than one month after TensorFlow was originally um, open sourced. <laughs> right. So yeah. was TensorFlow a thing before you joined? Yeah, it's a good question. So TensorFlow is the second generation of deep learning um, library and framework that Google has developed. The first generation is called Dist Belief. I believe it stands for like um, Distributed um, Belief Networks. So short for, um, so the short name is, is Dist Belief. So TensorFlow is like a um, is, is like a successor to that, if you will. So it's um, it, uh, it's based on Python. The, f- the first iteration, this belief, is based on C++. Python is much easier to use than C++ for most people. And uh, it also has um, learned um, a lot from other deep learning libraries in um, Python that existed at that time, such as Theano and uh, Keras and so forth. Okay. So... TensorFlow was around for maybe, is it, was it three or four years before TensorFlow.js? Yeah, um, that's about right. So TensorFlow started to exist sometime in 2015. And TensorFlow.js started as a project 
um, if you count the the um, predecessor to TensorFlow.js, which is DeepLearn.js, it started in some, sometime in 2017. So these two are actually only about two or three years apart, not that far apart from each other. Okay, so you originally were working on TensorFlow on what, in C++ or was it Python? Yeah, um, so my um, work with TensorFlow um, covered a, a bunch of different areas. So I was initially working on the, the testing and the release infrastructure for um, TensorFlow, like how to test the library both in Google internal infrastructure and also in the open source infrastructure, which is kind of different from the Google internal infrastructure, and how to package the library as a pip package that people can download and install in Python. So that was my first work. And my second piece of work um, was uh, with, with was about debugging in TensorFlow. So as you may know, the first version of TensorFlow is hard to debug because it's like um, session.run interface, which is like um, deferred execution. It's not very Pythonic. So I, I basically designed and wrote um, a debugger for that um, paradigm. So it's called TensorFlow Debugger, if you have um, ever heard of that. Yeah, so after that, um, I, I, I um, got um, connected with um, people like Nikhil Farad and uh, Daniel Smilkov. So they were the people who originally invented DeepLearn.js. And then we started to rebrand it as um, TensorFlow.js. They focused on the, the low-level WebGL acceleration part, and uh, I working together with some other um, teammates focused on the highly um, higher level API called TensorFlow.js layers, and also it's um, like interface with the Python library. Yeah, I like the layers. It's a lot easier to, to follow what's mm -hmm. going on instead of setting up all the, the variables manually. With... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's basically the kind of um, the, the kind of feeling that Python people also have, right? So um, the idea that Low-level TensorFlow is very hard to use. You have to like define those constants and variables and uh, worry about how to take the gradients of those operations yourself. Um, whereas if you have Keras, then it's much easier to use. It's like um, building like kids' Lego toys. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, way, the way I look at layers is like it, it, it provides you a way to create these dense networks with, with biases. And instead of, if you had to do that, with just the, the normal way of doing it, it would take you ages and ages to create all those variables and wire them all up yeah, and train them. Right. Um, it's not only that it takes a long time, but also it's error prone, right? So except for those experts who have done this like many times before, um, if you're doing this for the first time, chances are that you're going to get it wrong. Like if you, you use a high level API like Keras or um, the JavaScript TFJS layers, it's much likely that you will get it right the first time, even though there is still a chance that you will make some other mistakes. <laughs> so I, you, you, the Layers API uses the same um, low-level API that was there beforehand? Yeah, good question. So um, yes, so to a large extent, that's true. Although when we were writing the Layers API, um, oftentimes we find that there are some missing pieces in the lower-level um, API, so we will just go in and implement that. All right. What what can you remember? What kind of things those were? So, for, for instance, um, when we were trying to build a batch normalization layer, I believe the feature, um, the support for batch normalization was not very complete in the core parts, which is to say the lower level part of TFJS. So, mm -hmm. um, so my collaboration um, relation with Nikhil and Daniel and other people of the TFJS team is like very like um, informal. So we. 
um, we don't have a very clear boundary of what each person works on. So if I see a missing piece in the low-level API, I often just go in there and uh, fix that. I see. Which is a very nice relation. So I've I created this Discord for TensorFlow. Originally, it was called DeepLand.js. We now have around a thousand one hundred users on there, and. Mm -hmm. um, Originally, I just created it so that they help me understand the, the TensorFlow.js. We do see that most of the questions tend to revolve around around Python. Um, oh, interesting. Pardon? Yeah, um, I, I, I was just commenting that, that the fact that most questions are about Python is interesting. Um, what sort of like questions are are they? Uh, we can get absolute. We get a lot of absolute beginner questions, and we have a lot of good uh, moderators that. That give their time explaining things and we have some really advanced things that come on we say we have a channel for GANs for reinforcement learnings um, <clears throat> uh, pretty much anything you want I mean I'll, I'll invite you in the server uh, if you're not already there um, but it's really growing a lot and it's hard to keep track of all the stuff that's going on I feel ashamed sometimes because I'm so focused on the, the front end stuff that I'm I don't have much time to do the deep learning side of things mm -hmm. but it's a passion of mine and I'm definitely going to get back into it at some point so one thing that I was wondering about is how much I think is it the, the Python version more feature complete than the JS version? Yeah, um, so you're asking about the feature difference between the Python TensorFlow yeah. and the JavaScript version of TensorFlow. Yeah, so there are a lot of um, differences. So for instance, um, some things that are supported in Python are not supported in TensorFlow.js. Um, a good example of that would be um, support for TPUs, right? So, you know, TPU, um, which is a part of Google Cloud, is an um, application-specific um, IC, ASIC, for, like, really, really accelerated, fast machine learning training. So yeah. we still don't support that in TensorFlow.js. And the rationale for that is um, TensorFlow.js, even though in um, some cases people would want to, like, build models and train models from scratch in the front end, it is not like, like the, the it's not intended to support like training like really large state of the art models with cutting edge speed right so um and that's the reason why we don't have um an immediate short term um plan to support tpu so that's the first thing and uh, um one other feature that's kind of similar to tpu support is training on multiple gpus or training on multiple machines and the reason why we don't support that is kind of um similar to the re re reason i said if you want to train a really big um, model it's probably a good idea to train it in python using python tensorflow and then you can use our converter to to basically port the, the to convert the model from the python, python format into the javascript formats which you can then use in your browser environments or um, node.js environments and so forth yeah originally i was thinking that the, the appeal of, of TensorFlow.js would be because it's much larger developer pool. But when you look at the code, the model structures and that are, are quite similar. So I guess if you really wanted to do a model in Python and you knew the TensorFlow.js, you could mm -hmm. just port it over to Python because the syntax isn't that big a difference, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our low-level API and high-level API are, are both like... Um, not exactly similar, but uh, very similar between Python and JavaScript. So if someone is already familiar with the Python API, it should be re relatively easy for, for, for him or her, her to switch to the JavaScript API, whether it's the low-level one or the high-level one. Mm -hmm. one. One thing that I find quite hard to find is examples in industry of, of TensorFlow.js. Uh, I guess that's 
there's probably quite a commercially sensitive information, but I don't know if if Google have any, you know, cases that they can share to the public about, you know, usages of TensorFlow.js? Uh, so you're asking about like um, actual commercial um, use cases of yeah. TensorFlow.js, right? Yeah. So I guess there are two parts um, to the answer here. The first part is that we have um, a repository on GitHub called TFJS examples. Mm-hmm. So those are like um, very like diverse set of examples covering different kind of model types and uh, execution environments, covering the case of training and deployments and conversion and so forth. Yeah. But um, I guess those models are not really like being used in production. So I guess the question you're really asking is like whether there are any production use cases of TensorFlow.js. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yes. So the answer is um, yes. Uh, so if you um, look beyond Google, there are some like um, external companies, other companies who are using TensorFlow.js in their applications. So one example is Airbnb. So you know, Airbnb um, sometimes need to ask users to to take a photo of their ID sure. or take a, take a photo of um, themselves so to be used as the profile picture. Yeah. So sometimes people are confused, right? So they take a picture of them. Of their ID, and then they um, use the ID photo as their profile ID, which is not good because <laughs> leak their like information, like the ID number and so forth. So they have uh, in, an in-browser model um, um, based on TensorFlow.js, so that can automatically classify, uh, basically do a binary classification to decide whether the photo the user uploads is a ID photo or not. If it's wrong, then it's going to um, warn the the user. So. Yeah. That's one use case. We also have like a lot of other like um, so um, examples. So for, for instance, IBM has a project that um, uses TensorFlow.js to run an um, image recognition model in the phone. So that can help people who are in Africa um, to detect basically um, certain kinds of like parasites. So those parasites apparently cause like um, infectious um, illness to um, a lot of people over there. Okay. Yeah. And this is something that can run offline or just with a web connection? Yeah, so like um, in all other cases of TensorFlow.js, the model downloading, the initial downloading has to use the internet. Um, right. Because you have to like transfer the model from the server side into the um, client side. But once the first um, the model is first downloaded, it's going to be cached, so it can be run offline. Okay, and that is that a, a web a progressive web app or something or I'm not sure if it's a progressive web app or not I think it, I believe it runs inside a mobile um, browser okay that's the nice thing about JavaScript right it's um, ubiquitous um, it runs in the browser runs in all sorts of devices and uh, not only browser but also node.js and uh, single board um, computers and so forth okay basically everywhere so where does the name tensorflow come from? Uh, I may not be able to answer that question with definity, um, but I believe um, TensorFlow is a, so it's quite easy to understand, right? So the library basically um, does um, mathematical computation and uh, it does so on those like multi-dimensional arrays. Um, and the tensor is just an easy way for, for like computer scientists to say like um, multi-dimensional arrays. So it's much easier to uh, it's a much easier to understand name compared to like multi-dimensional array flow, <laughs> yeah. and um, so that's the reason for the tensor part. And flow is just the fact that um, 
the numbers um, kind of like passes through different kind of operations um, one by one. So you can think of it as like um, liquid flowing through some kind of like um, device, mm-hmm. right? And uh, if you think about like the neural network training um, case, it's basically two passes, the, the forward flow and the backward flow. The forward flow is basically getting from your training examples into the loss function, and the backward flow is getting from the loss function backward um, into those variable values. So you can use back propagation to um, update those variable values, which is the essence of training, right? Okay. So if somebody wants to start learning either TensorFlow or TensorFlow.js, what would be the recommended way to go about it? So my personal answer might be biased um, because I'm the author of a book. So the book is almost um, ready to be published. It's called Deep Learning with JavaScript. So um, I assume that your audience are mostly like web developers or JavaScript um, uh, enthusiasts. So if you're from that background, um, that book is, um, in my opinion, in a biased opinion, the best way to start. It tells you, it teaches you the basics of machine learning um, all the way from scratch, right? It um, does not assume any formal mathematical background. It will use pseudocode and uh, um, diagrams to, to, to illustrate the basic ideas. It will teach you things like um, what is um, supervised learning and uh, what is backpropagation, how it works on a um, high um, level. And it's also uh, it's accompanied by a bunch of examples. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, those examples are all actual code that you can play with. So you can hack the code um, to, to, for instance, change the data sets, change the network structure and so forth, and see um, whether that can fit into your use case. It's also very good for understanding um, because the, the best way to understand a piece of code is to play with the code, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. So for the, those um, reasons, I think um, that book is good. Now, for the audience who want to start from um, JavaScript but want to um, maybe move on to like more advanced topics, like um, uh, find ways to do faster training, that, they can then use their knowledge of um, TensorFlow.js to easily um, switch into the world of Python TensorFlow, right? So there, the API is very similar, as I mentioned, but you will get access to a bunch of more um, advanced um, features like distributed training on a cluster of machines, TPUs, and so forth. And you make me want to go and start using Python again, but uh, I think mm-hmm. I'll try and do as much as I can in the browser. Okay. Is, uh, <clears throat> so. Do you think that the code for TensorFlow.js is more complicated than the Python one, just because you have this overhead of transferring data between the GPU and the browser? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, so if you look at the absolute size of the code base between the Python TensorFlow and uh, JavaScript TensorFlow, I think um, the Python one is definitely bigger. So the challenges for the two libraries are kind of different from each other, right? So. The challenge for, for the Python one is to make sure that as m- many things are done in the C++ level as possible, just because um, Python is known for being very slow, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the more th- things you can push the, down to the level of like CUDA and uh, C++, the faster um, speed you will get. So that's the first thing. Now for the JavaScript side, the challenge is kind of different. So JavaScript, um, in most cases, including Node.js and the browser, especially the Chrome browser, are using the V8 engine. And the V8 engine is um, very optimized with like um, just-in-time compilation and so forth. So the speed is like much, much faster compared to Python. So it is more acceptable to do things in the um, in the native language of JavaScript um, compared to Python. Um, but at the same time, there are other um, things to, to consider. So one big challenge here is 
is the fact that um, JavaScript is um, not used only for computation, but it's also used for the UI, right? So for instance, when you're training a model in the browser, you don't want the UI to freeze completely. So there's the balance between like how much you yield um, to the UI threat and uh, how much you, you hog the CPU or the GPU for, for, um, for, for training. Um, so we spent um, some like time and uh, um, thinking to, to get that balance right. So in the Python, a lot of the times it's getting offloaded to, to C++? Yes. Right. Eventually. So, yeah, although um, a very large part of the logic um, is still in Python. Um, so, uh, so in a sense, in the Python world, um, there's a trade-off between how much you put into C++ for performance reasons and how much you leave in, in Python for easier, like faster iteration. Um, because Python code is easier to, to read, easier to write, and also more concise compared to C++ code. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, it's uh, some really talented developers working on all this stuff, man. So, mm -hmm. so would you say that Python is the main implementation of TensorFlow? Yeah, I guess in a sense that's true. Um, so if you even if you look at TFJS nodes, uh, which is the version of TensorFlow.js that you can use in Node.js, it actually um, eventually like um, binds to the lib TensorFlow. So um, yeah, so actually the answer to your question is yes and no. So Python is a very important front end for TensorFlow, just because like Python is the de facto like um, most used, um, most popular language in the world of like machine learning and. Uh, the data science, but if you have to say like um, what language the library is implementing, I would say it's probably C++ um, because both the Python implementation and the JavaScript implementation eventually binds to um, a shared library called libTensorFlow, which is written in C++. So are you saying that TensorFlow GS running in the browser is, is using C++ under the hood? I was um, talking about the node. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so in the browser, it's different, right? Because in the browser, um, you can't really like call into C++ except for the case of WebAssembly, which is a separate issue. But in the browser, um, the current um, implementation of TensorFlow.js binds to WebGL. So we use WebGL shaders for accelerated um, parallel neural network math. So is that quite a maintenance burden because you have sort of two forks, one that supports the browser and one that supports Node? Yeah, so um, in practice, it's not that a uh, big burden, just because um, those low-level mathematical operations are pretty well defined, and it's very rare that will change. Um, I mean, there are some cases in which like uh, an argument will change, and uh, we have to like go and fix it. But in most cases, um, well-established things like um, matrix multiplication, two D convolution, they are um, pretty stable. So in that sense, it's not too much burden. Oh, okay, so you have the web shader language that sort of maps quite well over to the C plus plus. Yeah. Right. Okay. yeah, we also have a suite of tests to make sure that the numbers that come out from both flavors of computation match each other, which is okay. pretty important. So if, as you look in the world, there's a lot of new papers that are coming out with all these latest alg algorithms, and some of them they don't use TensorFlow, they probably use some other library. Do you think that TensorFlow is able to, to implement these new algorithms that people are inventing? Yeah, I think... Um, there is no like um, deep learning or machine learning library with a fuller set of features compared to TensorFlow. I mean, th there are other um, libraries out there like um, Scikit-Learn and so forth, and they are good at um, certain th things. But TensorFlow is really known for its like um, uh, being very versatile. So it can, um, in principle, support all sorts of like um, 
uh, machine learning algorithms, including like um, deep neural networks, but also like um, trees and parsers, um and so forth. I think if you can think of any kind of like um, algorithm, someone must have implemented it in um, TensorFlow. Yeah, it's sort, of, it's sort of like a mathematics language that can basically do any mathematics problem. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so how much of sort of going away from hard tech but going into sort of philosophical realms, um, okay. how much do you think that people should be worried about their jobs that are that could be automated? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So um, I think if you are asking the question like two, um, one or two years ago, there was a, a lot of hype in the space. Mm -hmm. People are worried that's like even a programmer's job. Um, yeah. The kind of job that you and I do every day will be like taken over. But it turns out that um, it was like um, overhyped in that sense. So now like, um, but th there are some cases in which the the, the um, job can be gradually automated. Um, the thing that pops into mind is um, driving, right? So um, at least in some like um, specific domains of driving, like truck driving and so forth, I think things will catch up, um, even though there was still a lot of hype in that space. Um, yeah, so once the hype um, dies down a little bit, it will become clearer, like, um, which jobs are more easily automatable. And uh, in that sense, um, people need to worry about their security, job security. Yeah, some, but some people like even Elon Musk say AI will destroy us all and things like that. How, what do you feel about those kind of almost conspiracy, conspiracy theories? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about like um, uh, vague ideas like that, I guess. Um, perhaps I should. Yeah, but um, anyway, so I, I think anything that involves like creativity and uh, um, complex planning is hard to um, automate. So I think one reason why there was a, um, quite a, a, a lot of hype um, two or three years ago is because like um, the success of things like AlphaGo, right? So um, the game of Go seems to be very complicated. People say that the possible, like Go, um, the number of possible Go games is bigger than the number of atoms in the universe. Yeah, yeah. So, so in that sense, it's actually um, um, not as complicated as people think. So even though the number is is very big, um, the rules are simple, and it's a really very um, limited domain. So that kind of problem is relatively easy for a machine to um, solve. So the kind of like algorithm um, DeepMind um, came up with can solve the problem very well. But it turns out that most problems, even as simple as driving, um, is like orders of magnitude more complicated than that. It's going right. to take time for, for people to to find the right way to solve those problems. For me, the most impressive use of AI was the Dota tournament. Five, five machines that beat the five pro players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. But I remember I saw in the um, news that um, some human player actually found ways to be that AI later on. Is that right? <laughs> okay. What for you is the most impressive use of AI for machine learning ever seen? Uh, that's a good question. So, um, so I was personally working on a project called Euphonia. So it's a Google internal project. Um, I, I, I guess it's not internal anymore. It has been announced. But it's basically using deep learning to help people with um, like severe neuromotor um, disorders. So people who can't like speak very well anymore, right? So um, in conditions like ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, people um, lose control of their like um, motor neurons, so they can't control their speech. 
So, but they can still produce sounds, right? So, um, and in some cases, the, those sounds are um, distinct from each other that they carry. They can carry some information. Yeah. So, one very good use of deep learning, in my opinion, um, and I also worked on a project um, personally, is to use deep learning in the browser to help um, people like um, convey the information by using those sounds. So, we can use transfer learning in the browser to train a model specifically for the sounds produced by that user, and then those sounds can be connected with um, actions that are useful to the user, like sending email messages or sending text messages or controlling um, furniture, like home automation and so forth. So we, are, uh, we still haven't like, um, like put that product in the market in a form that people can freely use yet, but um, we are making progress. Oh, that would be great to help those people, for sure. Okay, um, I'm, reach, I'm, I'm, I'm gradually reaching the limit of what I can ask because this topic is a bit uh, challenging for me. So uh, mm-hmm. um, I'm just wondering for you personally, what you, uh, would you sort of see your interest, you see yourself continuing with TensorFlow in the near term or you've got other interests yeah, maybe? Good question. Yeah, so I guess um, I'm, yeah, so... In the recent months, I've been gradually like um, doing more work on the Python side of um, the, the framework. So one big um, pain point that people who are doing machine learning in Python um, or in JavaScript is the fact that um, machine learning models are hard to debug, right? So oftentimes when you're training a model, uh, the training goes well for the first um, an hour or so, and then an hour into the training, your model blows up with NANs or infinities. So that kind of problem is hard to debug. Even the eager execution um, model in like TensorFlow.js or in, or in TF2 is hard to, um, uh, they cannot support the debugging of that kind of problem very well. So I'm basically extending TensorFlow debugger to make it easier to use and uh, to um, make a, um, a more beautiful UI in TensorBoard to support that kind of problems. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is coming up to uh, the end of my questions. Um, what advice would you give to people that are trying to transition transition to machine learning, but they're finding it difficult, conceptually difficult? Yeah, so I guess um, my personal experience is that um, <clears throat> the best way to learn about something is to, to solve a, um, an actual problem, a very actual, very concrete problem. So, um, for instance, um, my on-ramp to machine learning was basically a project in which I tried to recognize like handwritten um, mathematical equations in the browser. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I basically like um, thought about like how those like um, handwriting can be represented as data sets, and then I, I I was crazy enough to like um, to to collect a data set from myself. Like I think the data set consisted of like um, about one hundred thousand um, characters. <laughs> so um, yeah, but. I'm not saying that um, every person should do that, but um, in most cases, I think you, you can find a topic that you're interested in, and that topic should be um, a topic that you can apply machine learning or deep learning on. And uh, because you're personally interested in that topic, you can um, you can uh, try to learn different kind of techniques and try to apply those techniques to solve the problem and compare to see um, which techniques are better than um, others. So I, I guess that kind of interest or curiosity driven approach to learning is very good for, for like transitioning from traditional software engineering to machine learning, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make some YouTube videos with some uh, repositories mm-hmm. that go through gradually improving and making a model more complicated and just break it down, try and make it simple for my users. Because sometimes that's how I best learn is trying to teach something. 
Yeah. And also one other piece of advice is um, there are those like um, platforms like Kaggle um, on which you can like interact with other people, right? You can look at other people's code. Um, you can work on the same problem that many other people are um, working on. So in a sense, you can actually learn from other people's mistakes or learn from what other people are um, doing right. And that sort of like interaction is also good for to, to, to keep you um, uh, on, on the track. Okay, okay. Um, is there anything not so secret that you can tell us about future TensorFlow versions, or I guess you don't want to know Google? <laughs> yeah, um, so I think because TensorFlow is um, an open source library and we try to be as open as possible, I don't think um, there's too much secret about what's going on. Yeah, so one big um, exciting direction in which the library, um, both the Python version and the JavaScript version is going is to like... Um, uh, better support different kind of hardware through something called MLIR. So MLIR stands for Mid-Level um, Intermediate Representation. It may sound like a very intimidating name, but it's actually um, quite simple conceptually. It's basically a way to represent um, a machine learning model or any kind of like machine learning um, algorithm in a way that's independent of like what language you're writing it in and what hardware you, you try to deploy it on. I see. Right? So one challenge that um, MLR is trying to solve that is that currently um, there's an explosion of like the kind of hardware people make for machine learning to, to make the models run faster on different kind of um, devices, both for training and for inference. Mm. Now, um, it's very hard um, if you don't have like a, um, a unified intermediate um, data format um, mm that so MLR is going to um, solve that problem so um, more and more parts of TensorFlow will be using that um, and the benefits to the user is that um, you will be able to write your your program once and then the program can run all sorts of um, um, uh, hardware be it like GPUs or um, Google TPUs or any kind of like custom training hardware that other companies or startups will come up with and then after the training is done, um, you don't have to make much change to your code in order for it to run on like fast inference devices, um, for instance, like cutting edge, um, innovative chips on phones um, and so forth. Okay, well, that sounds really exciting. Um, <laughs> great. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? No, I think um, that's pretty much it, unless you have any other questions. Uh, I don't think I'm able to ask any more questions. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank well, you so much. Shang Ching, that was very it was an honor to have you on the show. And um, maybe we'll have you on again at some point uh, once I learn Thank more so about TensorFlow. <laughs> Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, everybody, you were listening to uh, the Shang Ching, um, and that was a TensorFlow episode. So. Thank you very much and we'll see you again soon.